Okay, let's look at our scripture for our sermon that can be found on the back of the bulletin. It will also be up on the screen. Uh, this takes place right after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Um, I uh, preached on that last week, and now we're going to look at the aftermath of that. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and have se had seen what he did, namely raising Lazarus from the dead, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, they should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The word of the Lord. Well, have you ever asked the question, why do I do what I do? I mean, we all do things, right? And we think we know why we do them. But the reality is often we don't know what's going on behind the surface that is causing us to do what we do. See, there's actions, and then there's the motivations that are behind those actions. It was Joe Torre, the former uh, manager of the Yankees, that said whenever a player came to him and was upset or angry about something, that he tried not to listen to exactly what it was that they were saying, 
but rather to what was behind what they were saying. In the story, we see two different groups of people that have profoundly different reactions to the same event. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And we see the chief priests and the Pharisees as a result of that, wanting to put Jesus to death and Mary loving Jesus extravagantly, pouring this oil out on his feet. Profoundly different motivations resulting in profoundly different lives. I've come to the conclusion through my exhaustive study of the human personality that there are only two lives that a person can live, an expedient life or an extravagant life. The question is, which one of those are you living? We're going to look at the actions of these two different groups of people, and we're going to figure out for us, what kind of life am I living? An expedient life or an extravagant life? So we're going to look at three different points. We're going to first look at the chief priests and the Pharisees who are living an expedient life. And then we're going to look at Mary, who is living an extravagant life. And then finally, we're going to look at Jesus. What kind of life did he live? And we will discover that he is an extravagant God. So let's look at point number one. What is an expedient life? As I've already said, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, this amazing miracle. And we see in verse 45 that many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen it, believed in him. In other words, they saw this miracle, they saw who Jesus was, and they put their trust and their faith in him. But, verse 46 says, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The way this is phrased, it tells us that this particular group of people were not happy at what Jesus had done. In fact, they were in opposition to what Jesus had just done, that somehow raising Lazarus from the dead was a bad thing. You have to scratch your head and ask, how is that possible? And the answer is that the hatred of God can blind you. So these, these people go to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and what do we see that they do in verse 47? They gather the council. The council is known as the great Sanhedrin. And this consisted of 70 people and the chief priest, the high priest, 71 people. And the Sanhedrin was kind of like the three branches of government combined all into one. They were the legislative, executive, and judicial body of the nation of Israel. And it was comprised of the Pharisees, some powerful merchants, and mostly the priests. The high priest is extended family of priests. And their purpose was to oversee Israel, what the Romans had delegated to them, and especially the religious life of Israel, to make sure that the Bible was being taught, that people were following the Bible and obeying what God had said. And notice what it says. This council was gathered, and it was said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Now, I scratch my head and ask the question, why do they have to do anything? In other words, isn't this a good thing that what Jesus is doing, raising people from the dead? Why do they need to take action at all? 
I mean, these people should be looking for the Messiah. This is their role and their responsibility. Because God in the Old Testament had already communicated that he would send someone who would come and redeem the world, the Messiah. They continued on, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now notice what they're not examining. They're not asking the question, is this man from God? Is this the Messiah we should be looking from? For, I mean, he just raised someone from the dead, but they're not interested at all with who Jesus is. Rather, what they're interested in is their position. See, this Sanhedrin has been given a certain measure of authority and power to rule. And as a result, they have a high degree of prestige. But Jesus is threatening their situation. Notice what they say. If Jesus keeps doing this, he's going to take away our place and our nation. In other words, it belongs to us. Now, these are supposed to be the holiest men of Israel. If anyone could recognize the Messiah, it would be them. But they only care about one thing, and that's power. Verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, this is the high priest, supposedly the most spiritually mature person of the entire nation of Israel. And Caiaphas gets up and says, essentially, look, guys, this is a no-brainer. Jesus dies and our problem is solved. So all we have to do is kill him and our problems go away. Now, keep in mind, there is no legal basis whatsoever to put Jesus to death. But to Caiaphas, it doesn't matter. And so it says in verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The Sanhedrin reached their decision. They made a decision not from what was right, but rather that from what was expedient. See, that's why so many people reject Jesus Christ. Because he upsets the status quo. See, we believe I am in charge. Nobody can tell me what to do. But if we acknowledge Jesus, all of a sudden we're accountable to someone other than ourselves. John 3.19 put it this way, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And so many reject Jesus right out of hand. And I want to say, wait, wait, wait. But Jesus came into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save it. Did he not say, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full? What Jesus came to do to Lazarus, he has come to do to us, to bring us resurrection life, not only spiritually in this world, in this life, but physically upon our death. But so many people say, I may be miserable, but I'm comfortable. And so they disregard Jesus. 
I like what C.S. Lewis said about this. He said, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling darkness on the walls of his cell. In other words, whatever we believe about Jesus Christ, Jesus has been resurrected from the grave. He has proven himself to be the son of God. And the world can never be the same. I can pretend that that doesn't affect me, but it does. For if he is the son of God, he is worthy of all of our worship. But you see, there is a temptation in all of us to live an expedient life. You may claim to be a Christian, but there's a little asterisk at the end of that sentence. I am a Christian, a follower of Jesus, as long as I can live a comfortable, respectable life. But Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. For whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says, if you are going to follow me, you must obey my greatest commandment to love me with all that you have and to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, to be a Christian is to live differently than the world lives. The world we live in tolerates evil, even celebrates it. But to be a follower of Christ means that we cannot stand in the sidelines. We cannot be quiet. We all know the issue of racism in our country and in our world. I'm with a group of friends of mine, and one of them makes a comment, a racist comment. Oh, it's subtle. But do I say something or do I be quiet? Or I'm at my place of employment and I see something going on that's racist in its nature. Do I say, time out, this is wrong, we need to change this? Or do I stick with the status quo and not rock the boat? We've heard about the issue of abortion. In our abortion, in our culture, our world says if you don't want that child, the child is a thing. But if you want it, it's a child. That can't be right. There's no logic or reason to that. And maybe we're willing to speak out against abortion. But are we willing to come alongside men and women who have made that difficult decision to keep their child? But we're too busy to get involved with the difficult issues that people face. Our culture objectifies and demeans women. So you're at a bar with some of your friends and they bring up a girl that you know and start talking about her in a way that you know is wrong. Do you say something or do you keep quiet? You're a high schooler and there's that guy that sits at the lunch table alone. No friends anywhere. Do you go over and reach out to him or do you stay away because he's radioactive socially? See, the question we need to ask ourselves is this. How much like Caiaphas are we? We often make decisions out of fear. 
We don't want to be nonconformists. We don't want people to think that we're marching to a different drumbeat. We don't want to provoke the hostility of the world. And so we remain silent and live expedient lives. I don't know if you've heard of this investigative report that came out regarding the Southern Baptist Convention recently, which breaks my heart. The Southern Baptist Convention is one of the largest Protestant denominations, like 14 million people. And this report that came out showed that there was widespread instances of sexual abuse by leaders in churches. But the Southern Baptist leadership, the executive committee, instead of making these allegations known and warning churches and listening to abuse victims, sought to cover up this information. They left abusers in positions of authority, not alerting the public, and bypassed going to the authorities. The report showed a leadership more interested in shaming survivors and preventing legal liability than stopping the abuse. An expedient life. See, my friends, we have to look at our own lives. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you do not get the freedom to live a comfortable life if it's at the expense of truth or justice or love. So where are you and I living expediently? Where am I turning a blind eye when I should be speaking out? Where am I choosing to withhold love and grace and care when I should be engaging? Is it someone at work? Someone at school? Someone in my neighborhood? Am I too busy, too embarrassed, or too threatened to reach out? Am I putting what's best for me over what's best for Christ? Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. So if we don't act, if we don't love, who will? The world lives expediently. And that is not an option for you or me, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Well, what about an extravagant life? My second point. We see six days before the Passover, Jesus has come back to Bethany, the place where he raised Lazarus from the dead. And they give a dinner for him, a, a dinner in his honor. And Martha is serving, and Lazarus is one of those reclining with him at the table. And we see Martha, uh, excuse me, Mary, who does this unbelievable act, verse 3. She took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And this house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, this uh, uh, expensive ointment is, is uh, from oil that was extracted from the root and the spike of the nard plant, which was grown in India. It was used as a, a perfume, and it was outrageously expensive. Uh, we see that this uh, pound of ointment is worth 300 denarii, which is the equivalent of one year's wages. Imagine working for an entire year and it all being encapsulated in this little jar. And so what does Mary do with this costly ointment? 
She breaks the jar and she takes it and she begins anointing Jesus's feet. And in the other gospel, it says that she also does it with his head. She's putting this this, uh, ointment on Jesus's feet and not just a little bit. So much so that the house is just filled with this beautiful smell. Now, when somebody came into someone's house, you were supposed to give them water to wash their feet. And uh, the rule was you could put a couple of drops of perfume in it. Uh, But that's it, because the Torah said, don't be wasteful. And yet what Mary is doing is at the height of wastefulness. She's wiping his feet. uh, She's uh, uh, putting this nard on his feet, and then she's wiping it with her hair. Now, back then, it was very taboo for a woman to let down her hair in public. It was only something she was supposed to do in private uh, with her, for her husband. This was embarrassing. The guests must have been shocked to see what Mary was doing. Can you imagine taking your hair and wiping somebody's feet with it? But Mary is not embarrassed at all to clean Jesus' feet with her hair. Why is Mary doing this? Well, the dinner was to honor Jesus, wasn't it? And Mary wanted to show Jesus the honor that she felt was due to him. And so she took the most expensive thing that she owned. She broke it and she poured it out. Everyone else is shocked. I mean, you wouldn't even do this for a king. It's scandalous and it's wasteful. And who is Mary doing it for? Not the crowd who's scandalized. She's communicating her heart for Jesus. So think how much work you do in a year. Imagine that. Take your salary. How much do you make a year? $20,000, $50,000, $100,000? Take all of that money, all of that work, save it up, and in the space of about five minutes, break it and pour it out on the feet of someone. Mary was saying, this is what you're worth to me, Jesus. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, said, why wasn't this ointment sold and, and, and the money used to pay for the poor, to, to care for the poor? Which on the surface seems like a good argument, right? However, we discover he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Actions and motivations, right? His true motivation was he wanted the money for himself. But notice what Jesus says. Leave her alone. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus defends her. It may sound callous, but Jesus was not saying that the poor should be ignored. Rather, he was saying that the opportunity to serve him in a tangible way would not last long, while ministry to the poor would always be in demand. In other words, he's saying Mary has done a beautiful thing. Why did Mary do it? This was the man who restored her brother to life. 
As she was pouring out this fragrance, there was Lazarus, her brother, risen from the dead, sitting at the table. She knew that Jesus loved her, and she loved him. And no sacrifice to her was too great. No cost was too much to show Jesus what he meant for her. Notice that Jesus isn't embarrassed at all. He never said, no, 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 you don't have to do that. Jesus is the son of God and he's worthy of all worship and honor. And the truth of the matter, my friends, is that each one of us were meant to live an extravagant life toward God. We were designed to worship him. The Bible says that the greatest command is to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. It's why we were created. A lot of people don't know the answer, what am I here for? Why do I exist? Well, it's right here. To love God with all of our heart, which means all of our passion, what we see Mary doing all of our mind, the thoughts that we have in our head, all of our strength, which is our skill and our abilities and our talents. And when we are doing this, we are acting most in line with who we were meant to be. I wonder if anyone came up to Mary afterwards and said, wow, Mary, that must have been a difficult decision. Mary would have responded, not at all. See, she understood the true worth of Jesus Christ and everything else paled in comparison. Mary got it when everyone else didn't. So what does living an extravagant life toward Jesus Christ look like? I mean, I don't have any nard and I can't annoy Jesus's feet if I did have it because he's in heaven. So what's the most valuable thing that I do own? Is it my house? Is it my stock portfolio? No. The most valuable thing that you own is you. And so what can I give to Jesus in living an extravagant life? I can give myself. Remember the story of a man that used to come to church and he was a wealthy businessman. He was a churchgoer, but he, he wasn't a Christian. Not, uh, he wasn't a Christian, but he, came, he became convicted that he needed to do something to honor Jesus Christ. So he set up a meeting with the pastor and he said to the pastor, I want to do something for Jesus. I want to give you one of my tugboats. He owned a fleet of tugboats. And the pastor thought about it, and the pastor said, no, I won't take it. And the man said, you don't understand. This is one of my tugboats. This is a multi-million dollar investment, and I'm giving it to the church. I'm giving it to, to Jesus Christ. And the pastor said, no, we won't take it. Well, why not? And the pastor said, Jesus doesn't want your tugboat. He wants your heart. Because once he gets your heart, he gets all of your tugboat. See, an extravagant life is to give him your life. 
John 14, 21 says, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. In other words, to love Jesus is to love the things that he loves. To not live for ourselves anymore, but to live for him. And so to live an extravagant life is to know his commands, what he cares about, and to respond in how I live in choosing to honor him in how I work, in how I raise my kids, in how I relate to my boyfriend or to my girlfriend, and in how I love others. Because when you love someone for Christ's sake, it's as if you were loving him himself. Jesus says in Matthew 25, 35, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? And Jesus will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. It's very interesting as I've read some on this this crisis, this tragedy in Uvalde, Texas. And I've learned a little bit about the shooter whose name was Salvador Ramos, an 18-year-old kid. And it's the classic story of a bullied loner who had few, if any, friends. A former classmate said that Ramos would get severely bullied and made fun of a lot and was taunted by others for the clothes he wore and his family's financial situation. It is true, my friends, that hate breeds hate. And I wonder, could things have been different if some Christians had reached out to him, had gone to him and befriended him, I'm sure he wasn't the easiest person to be around, but to sacrifice their social standing and status to reach out to someone who was in pain. Maybe it could have been. I don't know. All I know is that you and I are to be a fragrance. So how do you smell? Our lives are meant to be broken and poured out into the world. We're meant to live an extravagant life for Christ's sake. For it brings pleasure to Jesus Christ when we love. So let us live an extravagant life and not an expedient one. Which brings me to my final point, the extravagant God. What kind of life does Jesus live? It's very interesting that both Caiaphas and Mary, in what they did and said, foreshadowed what was about to happen, right? Caiaphas got up and said, you don't understand that it's beneficial, that it has to happen, that one man would die so that the nation would not perish. And it goes on in verse 51 and 52 to say that Caiaphas, though he didn't realize it, was actually prophesying what was going to happen. 
Caiaphas was thinking politically. But what was spiritually going on was Jesus Christ was going six days from then to offer himself up on the cross so that his people would not die, but would be forgiven of their sins. Mary does the same thing, right? She's, she's showing her love for Jesus, not realizing that she's foreshadowing what is about to happen. Leave her alone, Jesus says. What she's doing is actually for my burial. Jesus is on a crash course with the cross. And in just a couple of days is going to show extravagant love. Because Jesus knows the fate of those that he loves. Mary and Martha and Lazarus and all of his children. That we actually belong in that tomb, right? The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. And all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have lived expedient lives, choosing ourselves over God and others. We have wronged God. And death is our destiny. But Jesus comes and says, I will pay for their sin. A life for a life. There's no reason for him to die for us. We don't deserve it. But Jesus shows extravagant love. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus will be broken and poured out on the cross that we, if we believe in him, might be saved and find life in his name. It is true that there is no greater love than he who gives his life for his friend. It's Jesus who wipes your head and feet with his grace, who endures the scorn and the shame of the crowd for our sake. Why is Jesus worthy of all that I am and my extravagant love? The answer is because he first showed extravagant love to me. I don't know if you know the history of Memorial Day. It's been shown historically that the first Memorial Day actually occurred on May 1st, 1865 in Charleston, South Carolina. And this is the way it went down. The Union soldiers who were fighting were in, in South Carolina were imprisoned at the uh, racetrack at South Carolina that was turned into a prison. And because the conditions were so poor, over 260 Union soldiers died uh, there in, uh, in defense of that war. And they were buried right behind the grandstands. And so just when the war was done, freed slaves in South Carolina, in Charleston, wanted to honor their sacrifice. These men who had fought that they might be free of slavery. And so on May 1st, 1865, over 10,000 people, almost all of them free slaves and some white missionaries, came together and held a parade on the track to honor those who had given their life that they might be free. 
Memorial Day is about freedom. And what Jesus did on the cross in the same way is so that we would be free of the penalty and the power of sin. The cost of Mary's gift, 300 denarii. What is the cost of the life of the Son of God? It's incalculable. So today, this Memorial Day, receive his gift. Respond with extravagant love. For the only proper response to extravagant grace is extravagant love. Do you know it? Do you know the love of Jesus Christ? Have you surrendered to it? For it's only his love that gives us the heart and the ability to give an extravagant love for others. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your extravagant love that on that cross you were broken and you were poured out that we might have life in your name. In that grace, Lord, help us to live extravagant lives for you. In the way we lay down our lives for one another. In the way that we obey you and follow your words. That you may be pleased and honored because of what you've done for us. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.